Okay, let's get, let's get started here. We'll begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we are excited each and every time that we can gather together before you to learn more about you and your word and your way of life. We ask that you will help us to use this time together to draw closer to you and be conformed to the image of your dear son. We ask these things in his name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Bob has been going through Acts verse by verse, and he's now in Acts chapter 7. Um, I really appreciate when he gives us these themes that, that run through Luke-Acts. Last week he explained to us the, the concept of visitation, how important that was. Today we're going to look at another aspect of Acts chapter 7. It's an aspect of, that you, you may not have considered before, you may not have been aware of it before. When I was in, in college, one of my fellow students said to me, well, you really can't believe in the Bible because it, it contains so many contradictions. And I said, okay, name one, show me one. And of course he hemmed and hawed and he couldn't exactly point to, to a contradiction. And, and many people who believe that the Bible is full of contradictions are like that. They've just heard that the Bible is full of contradictions but they really can't point to one. But there are some scholars who are so determined to find fault with the Bible that they have identified many of what they consider to be discrepancies, contradictions within the Bible. And Acts chapter 7 is one of their favorites because Acts chapter 7, they claim, has many contradictions. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is retelling the story of Israel. And at many points in his telling of the story, it seems to differ from what the Old Testament tells us. So that is why they claim that there are many discrepancies and contradictions in Acts chapter 7. But I look at Acts chapter 7 in a totally different way. It's one of my favorite chapters of the Bible in terms of apologetics because it gives us the opportunity to demonstrate the veracity of the Bible, that it really is true, that it really is accurate. Even though the Bible was written over a period of about 1,600 years by about 40 different human authors, there's a message, a theme that runs through the Bible, and it's not full of contradictions and discrepancies, as they say. So let's look at some of the alleged discrepancies and contradictions in the book of Acts. The first one we're going to look at is 75 years old or 135 years old. So this is, this is Stephen narrating the story of Israel. And he says, Then he, meaning Abraham, left the country of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After his father died, that's important, after his father died, God had him move from there to this country, meaning Israel, the land of Israel, in which you are now living. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 4, it says, So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old 
when he departed from Haran. So keep those two facts in mind. First of all, that Abraham left Haran after his father died, after his father Terah had died, and that he was said to be 75 years old at the time. Now, at this point, you may not see the problem that arises here. Um, Norm has the first scripture that I asked to read. Uh, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 4. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 4. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Okay, so that's the, that's the context of the statement that Abraham was 75 years old. And once again, you may not see the problem yet, but when we get to chapter 11 of, of uh, Genesis, would you read that, Noel? Uh, Chapter 11, verses 27 through 32. Genesis 11, 27 through 32. Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law his son Abram's wife and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan and they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. So in Genesis chapter 11, in verse 26 of that chapter, it says, When Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abraham, or Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. So we get the idea from that verse that when Terah, the father of Abraham, was 70 years old, Abraham was born. But when we go down to Genesis 11:32. It tells us the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So if we think about that, if Terah was 70 years old when Abraham was born, and he lived another 135 years to the age of 205, then Abraham would have been 135. 
How can that be? We just read that Abraham was 75 when his father died and when he moved to Haran, moved away from Haran. But this seems to indicate that Abraham was 135. So which is it? Was he 75 years old or was he 135 years old? Well, there's an important assumption that we're making here that isn't necessarily so, and I would contend that it isn't so. Just because Abraham is mentioned first of the three sons, that doesn't necessarily mean that Abraham was born first. Just because Abraham is mentioned first, that doesn't mean that he was born first. That doesn't mean that he was born when Terah was 70 years old. And we see this often in Scripture. In the case of Moses and Aaron. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the Israelites. There are 67 times in the Bible where it mentions Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron. But Aaron was not the older of the two. In, in, in um, Exodus chapter 7, verse 7, it tells us plainly that when Moses was 80 years old, his brother Aaron was 83. So he wasn't the older of the two. Aaron was the older of the two. But Moses is always mentioned first. Why? Because Moses is most important to the story. And you will find that throughout the Bible, that when there are two sons or three sons, and one is mentioned first, that doesn't necessarily mean he's the oldest. We see the same thing with Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the three sons of Noah. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Six times it mentions those three together, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It's always in that order, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But if you read the story carefully about Noah and the flood and his three sons, you will discover that Shem was not the oldest of the three sons. In fact, Shem was the youngest of the three sons. But he's the most important to the story because Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Jesus Christ all came from the line of Shem. So Shem is the most important son in the story, but he's not the oldest son. So I contend that the same thing is happening here with Abraham. He's mentioned first, but he's not necessarily the oldest of the three sons. So this is what I contend really happened. When Terah was 130 years old, Abraham was born. When Terah was 205 years old and he died, Abraham then left Haran, and Abraham was 75, just as Genesis 12 tells us. So even though Terah became a father at the age of 70, Abraham wasn't his firstborn son. He had three, he had two, three sons altogether, but Abraham was younger. In fact, when you read the story, you find that, Abraham, that Haran died first. He was probably the oldest son, Haran. So there's no contradiction here between whether Abraham was 75 or 135. He was 75. And Genesis 11, verse 26, which, um, and further on in the chapter, which gives us the, the, the story of Terah and his lifespan, he, he wasn't 
he became a father at 70, but Abraham wasn't his firstborn son. So Abraham was 75, as the Bible says. There's no contradiction here. Another alleged discrepancy or contradiction. Stephen says this. Then Joseph sent and invited his father Jacob and all his relatives to come to him, 75 in all. So, Stephen gives us the number of 75 as the number of Israelites who came down into Egypt. But if we go back to Genesis, we read this in Genesis 46, 27. The children of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Well, isn't that a blatant contradiction? Which is it, 75 or 70? Well, I'll introduce this topic by giving you an analogy. Let's say that someone who comes to the church service at 10.30 but doesn't attend Sunday school asks the question, how many people were in Sunday school today? And let's say that Brian Beers took a count at 9 o'clock when Sunday school began. He counted all the people who were here at Sunday school. And let's say that somebody else, say Bill Fisher, took account of all the people who were in Sunday school at 10 o'clock when Sunday school was dismissed. So the, the person who has this question first asks Brian, how many people were in Sunday school today? And he gives them, that person a number. And then Bill, they ask Bill, and, and Bill gives them a different number. The two don't agree. They don't jive. So what do we conclude from that? Do we conclude that one of them is wrong? One of them isn't telling us the truth. No, they're just describing a different set of circumstances. There's a great deal of overlap between Brian's count and Bill's count. Most of the people who are in Brian's count are also in Bill's count. But there are always some people who are in Brian's count who are not in Bill's count. And there are some people who are on Bill's count that aren't in Brian's count. I'm one of the reasons why Bill's number and Brian's number often don't agree. <laughs> because whenever I have PowerPoint, even though I'm here at the beginning of Sunday school, I have to leave early to go practice with the singers and the musicians. And on those Sundays when we have the Lord's Supper, I'm usually not here right at the beginning of Sunday school because I'm busy getting everything ready for that, so I come later. So I'm one of the reasons, and other people are the reasons, why Bill's count won't agree with Brian's count. A similar thing is happening here. Stephen followed generally the, the uh, Septuagint rather than the Masoretic text. And that's part of the reason for, for this supposed discrepancy. Because the Septuagint is calculating its number in a different way than the Masoretic text is. The Masoretic text is the text that we generally use for our translations of the Old Testament. 
uh, the, the uh, writers of the New Testament often, when they quote the Bible, quote from the Old Testament, they are quoting from the Septuagint. And the, those two numbers are slightly different. So here's a, here's a diagram of these apparent discrepancies. So we have the, the Hebrew text, the Masoretic text, and then we have the Greek text, the Septuagint, and they're calculating their numbers in a different way. There are some people who are included in this number who are not included in this number, and there are some people in this number who are not included in this number. So first of all, we see Jacob and his wife, two people. They're included in the Hebrew text, but they're not counted in the Greek text, the Septuagint. As I said with, with Brian and Bill's number, there's a lot of overlap. Jacob's 12 sons, well, they're included in the Hebrew text and in the Greek text. Jacob's grandsons and great-grandsons, 54 of them, they're included in both the Hebrew text and the Greek text. Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, two of them, they're included in the Hebrew text and the Greek text. And then there are Joseph's additional descendants who are not, we are not told about in the, in the Masoretic text, but we are told about in the Greek text, in the Septuagint. So when you add up these two columns, you get different numbers, 70 and 75. So Stephen, who is following the, the Greek text, the Septuagint, he reports the number as 75, whereas the Masoretic text gives us a number of 70. So the two numbers don't really contradict each other. They're just, just describing different circumstances. Now, the, the next discrepancy that we want to look at Stephen is going on with his story. And he says, So Jacob went down to Egypt. He himself died there as well as our ancestors. And their bodies were brought back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Now, don't, don't confuse this incident with the incident where Abraham purchased Machpelah Cave as a burial place for Sarah. That's, that's a different incident. This is talking about the, um, the, the 12 sons of Jacob who were brought back and, and buried in Shechem, which it says Abraham had purchased. But in, if we go back to Joshua, there it says, the bones of Joseph, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem in the portion of ground that Jacob had bought from the children of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of money. So which is it? Did Abraham purchase this plot of land? Or did Jacob purchase this plot of land? 
Isn't that a discrepancy? Isn't that a contradiction? Uh, Brian, could you read Genesis 21, verses 22 through 34? Now it came about at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring or with my posterity. But according to the kindness that I have shown to you, you shall show to me and to the land in which you have uh, sojourned. Abraham said, I swear it. But Abraham complained to Abimelech because of the well of water which the servants of Abimelech had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor did I hear of it until today. Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. Then Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. Abimelech said to Abraham, What do these seven ewe lambs mean, which you have set by themselves? He said, You shall take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, so that it may be a witness to me that I dug this well. Therefore he called that place Beersheba, because there the two of them took an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba, and Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, arose and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. So this describes another incident involving Abraham and a a piece of land, a parcel of land. Even though Genesis does not describe Abraham purchasing the land of Shechem, I think that that is what happened. And we can see this in other cases. So, So you see that Abraham made a deal, he made a covenant with uh, Abimelech and the inhabitants of Gerar for this piece of la- other piece of land. But look what happened. This is what uh, Ryan was reading to us about Abraham taking sheep and oxen, making a deal, making a covenant with Abimelech and his people. So he, he, made an, uh, he had an official ceremony saying, all right, I... I occupied this land, I'm purchasing this land, this land is my land. But look what happened here. They, this is is Abraham's son, Isaac, and they, meaning Abimelech and the inhabitants of Gerar, said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you, Isaac, So we say, let there be an oath between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, so that you will do us no harm. Just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good, well, that's not entirely true, but that's the way they spun it, and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac set them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. Um, let's see, Nancy, you have an excellent right? Genesis 26, read, read verses 17 through 18. 
Genesis 26, 17 through 18. And Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Then Isaac dug up, pardon me, then Isaac dug again the wells of water which had been dug in the days of his father Abraham. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham, and he gave them the same names which his father had given them. So you see what happened here in this case is that Abraham had purchased his land. He'd laid claim to it. He said, this is my land. But just a few years later, his son Isaac had to make a deal for the same piece of land. He had to do everything all over again. He had to have have this ceremony and have, have this ritual, say, this is my land. Okay, they agreed to it, right? Well, I would contend that the same thing is happening in Shechem. Shechem was the first place that Abraham came to when he came into the, into the promised land. Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So I would contend that the same thing happened at Shechem that happened later on at Beersheba with Abimelech. Abraham purchased the land. He acquired the piece of property. It was his property. He built an altar there. But Jacob, his, his grandson in this case, Jacob had to purchase that same piece of land again and go through the whole rigmarole again to establish that this was his land. So the incident with Abraham and Isaac, as far as Beersheba was concerned, is the same thing. He had to make a deal. He had to make a covenant. He had this official ceremony to, to declare that this was his land. Both he and his grandson, in that case, had to do this. And back at Shechem, same thing. Abraham purchased the land, but his son Isaac had to do it all over again. So once again, there's not really a contradiction. Brian has a question. Was there nothing like deeds for property or anything back then that got passed down from generation to generation? I'm a supposed... Well... At this point, there were deeds in the minds of the parties involved, <laughs> but it was kind of like finders keepers, you know. Well, Abraham's, he bought this land, it was his land, but he's left, he's abandoned it, so let's move in, it's ours now. <laughs> That's how it worked. So when you came to the land, when Abraham or his descendants came to the land again, well, it's being occupied, there are squatters. <laughs> So you have to reestablish the fact that you, the land is yours. So once again, we see that there's not a contradiction between the idea that Abraham purchased the land and that Jacob purchased the land. Here we read about Jacob purchasing this land at Shechem. Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padnerim. See, uh, Abraham and his family, they, were, they lived a nomadic existence. They, were, they camped at this area for a while, then they moved to another area, you know, because of the changes in the seasons or the, 
what, there's a drought in one area and there's better pasture over here, so we could, let's feed our livestock over here. So he moved around a lot. So, so here we read about Jacob on his way from Paddan Aram. And he camped before the city, and from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for 100 pieces of money the plot of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Eloi Israel, meaning the God, God, the God of Israel. So we see this same pattern over and over again, where Abraham acquires the property, he sets up an altar, he purchases the land, he makes a covenant, he makes a deal with the neighbors, and then as soon as he leaves, the neighbors disregard it. <laughs> and so his son or his grandson has to do the same thing all over again, set up an altar, purchase the property, and, and have this official ceremony again. But once again, we see that there's not a contradiction between the story that Stephen is telling in Acts chapter 7 and the story that we find in the Old Testament. We just have to know a little bit about the historical context. Now, here's another situation that seems to be a, a discrepancy, a contradiction. So, Stephen is retelling the story of Israel, and he talks about what happened to them when they were wandering in the wilderness and they're on their way to the promised land in Canaan. And he says, you, meaning Israel, you took along the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Riphan, the images that you made to worship. So he's talking about that right out of the chute. The Israelites are already turning to idolatry. They're getting involved with foreign gods, with pagan gods, and they're turning away from Yahweh, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When Stephen said this, he was actually quoting from the Old Testament, from Amos 5.26. But if we turn back to Amos 5.26, in our Bibles we read this. You shall take up Sakut, your king, and Kaiwan, your star god, your images, which you made for yourselves. Now, what, what I want to focus on here is the difference between Riphan, as Stephen tells the story, and Kaiwan, as we read in Amos chapter 5, verse 26. I've highlighted some other words here just to show you some of the issues that translators have to deal with, some of the challenges that translators have to deal with. In the, in the uh, passage, in the verse from Amos, you see the word sakut. You may notice the similarity between that word and sukkot, temporary dwellings, shelters, temporary dwellings. So the translators of the Septuagint took sakut as sukkot, meaning temporary dwellings, shelters. So they, that's why they translated, translated it as tent. Whereas the Masoretic scholars put in vowel points, taking it as the, the proper name of a foreign god. 
if you look at the reference up there in, in Acts chapter 7, next you see that they took the word to be Moloch, and they thought that was the proper name of the, of the pagan god. Whereas the Masoretes took it as the Hebrew word for king, which is Melech. So th these are issues that, that translators have to deal with, and it's made more challenging by the fact that in the written Hebrew language, there are no vowels. You have to supply the vowels. So, so it becomes especially challenging when you have a, an unfamiliar word, a word that you're not familiar with, in this case, the name of a foreign god. So you can see that over the centuries, it becomes challenging to figure out, well, how did they say this? What, 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 are, what are they saying? But let's, let's concentrate on Rifan and Kaiwan. Why does, why does the Septuagint, and therefore Stephen, say Rifan? Well, the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text, says Kaiwan. In this column right here, you see the letters, and over here as well, the rest of them, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So those are the letters that you probably recognize as Hebrew writing. But you know what? It, that wasn't always the case. The Jewish people adopted that alphabet after they were taken into Babylonian captivity. Prior to that, they used a different alphabet. People are often amazed when I tell them that if Moses had a Hebrew Bible like this with these Hebrew letters in it that I showed you in that column, Moses couldn't read it. You know why? No, no. It wasn't because Moses couldn't read Hebrew. Moses did read Hebrew, but he used a different alphabet. He wouldn't have recognized that alphabet. Prior to going into Babylonian captivity, the Hebrew people used a different alphabet that scholars call Paleo-Hebrew, which is quite different, a quite different alphabet. This, this column right here and over here. So you can see that those letters are quite different from the alphabet that the Jewish people adopted later after they went into the Babylonian captivity. And another thing is that the letters of this Paleo-Hebrew alphabet weren't standardized. They weren't the same everywhere and over all time. They changed with the passage of time. They were different from one geographic area to the next. So you can see that there are several variations of the letters that were used. The 
There is an island in uh, the Nile River in Egypt called Elephantini Island. There was a colony at one time of Jewish people who lived on this island from about sometime in the 6th century BC to probably about sometime in the 4th century BC. So in other words, for about 200 years, there were Jewish people living on this island. Uh, it's, it's not exactly clear why there were Jews in Egypt at this time, but some of them suggested that it was because, because of one of Judah's particularly evil kings. There was a king in Judah named Manasseh, and he was a particularly evil man. Judah had lots of bad kings, but Manasseh was certainly one of the worst, if not the worst. He even brought pagan images into the temple. So some people speculate that the Jews who lived at this Jewish colony on Elephantine Island in Egypt were those people who fled because they wanted to keep the worship of Yahweh pure. They, they were really incensed by the fact that he had introduced pagan worship in, into the, even into the temple. But one of the things that has been found in Egypt, and you find a lot of things in Egypt because it's generally dry, so papyrus documents uh, tend to last longer than they would in a, in a humid climate. There were these documents that were discovered at Elephantine, Elephantine Island called, appropriately enough, the Elephantine Papyri. Papyri is the plural of papyrus. You have one papyrus and you have two or more papyri. There were about 175 of these documents that were found at Elephantina Island. And scholars have learned a lot about the development of the Hebrew alphabet by studying these documents. What they found out when they studied these documents is that the symbol for the Hebrew letter Kaf, the K sound, looked like this. The symbol for the Hebrew letter Resh, the R sound, looked like this. Notice how similar these two letters are. Now you can tell that the one on the left has a more of a curve to the upper portion than the one on the right, but you have to look closely to see that. I mean, <laughs> if you just looked at them quickly, you couldn't tell much of a difference. And also, the letter, the, the symbol for the Hebrew Hebrew letter Vav, the W looked like this. And the symbol for the Hebrew letter pay, the, the P sound, or some, in some cases the PH sound, looked like this. So they are different. I mean, the one on the left has uh, the, the hook comes down further, 
and the lower part of the letter has more of a curve to it, whereas the one on the right is more straight, but they're awfully similar. It would be quite easy to take one for the other. So we have these two words, and they look very similar, but they're not quite the same. So the one on the right, or on the, excuse me, on the left, this gets confusing, you have, because Hebrew reads from right to left, not left to right. So beginning on, on the right there, it was K-Y-W-N. And the other one, is R-Y-P-N. They look very, very similar, but you can see why it would be easy to take one for the other. And remember also that in Hebrew, as I said before, there weren't any vowels in the written Hebrew language, only consonants. So imagine if there were no consonants in the written English language, and you had the letters H-T, well, is it hat, or is it hit, or is it hot? Now, usually you could determine which it was from the context. But in some cases, you may not be able to. And that's especially true, once again, when we're dealing with, a, with an unfamiliar word, the name of a pagan god, a name that you don't use every day. And especially when that pagan god is from centuries earlier. So now I've flipped them around so it's easier for you to read. <laughs> Since you're used to reading from left to right, I've flipped them around so that. All right, so we have K-Y-W-N and R-Y-P-H-N. And then we add the vowels to these words. We'll add vowels to K-Y-W-N, and we get something like Taiwan. I won. And then we add vowels to the other one, and we get something like Rifan. So these two words may not look anything alike in English, but in Hebrew, they looked a lot alike, didn't they? With, with the script that those people on Elephantine Island were using. And remember that the Septuagint the translation from Hebrew to Greek was made where? In Egypt. So it's significant that this is in Egypt. So that is how the word in the Masoretic text in Amos 5.26 was Kaiwan and the word in the Septuagint, and therefore in Acts 7, as Stephen was telling the story, was Rifan. So Stephen wasn't a dunce. He knew his scripture. And when he's telling the story of Israel and using the Septuagint as his basis, it's understandable that he would use the terminology that was found in the Septuagint, the terminology that his 
hearers were familiar with. So actually, if he had said, if he had said Kaiwan instead of Raifan, people would have scratched their heads and said, what is he talking about? Nurses and pharmacists back there trying to read doctor's orders must have had a real hard time. Well, I, I think that sometimes doctors still use those Hebrew scripts. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's why I always said that I could never be a doctor. But my, my handwriting is too neat. But anyway, these are some of the alleged discrepancies and, and contradictions that critics of the Bible, skeptics of the Bible, uh, atheists, Muslims, like to glom onto and say, hey, see, this, this proves that the Bible can't really be the inspired word of God. But especially for those of you who are involved with evangelism, it's good for you to be exposed to these things in a friendly environment rather than to be suddenly confronted with them out in the field, so to speak, in a hostile environment. The important thing that we learn from this is that even though there appear to be discrepancies and contradictions in the Bible, there really aren't. And you don't necessarily have to know all of the answers to every single alleged discrepancy or contradiction. But the important thing for you to know is that there are answers, there are explanations for these alleged discrepancies or contradictions in the Bible. There are several good books that, that I would recommend to you on this subject. An older one is called Alleged Discrepancies of the Bible by John Haley. There's a lot of good information in that one. Even though it's older, I think it covers more uh, verses, more passages than some of the newer ones. Some of the ones that are a little newer are The Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties by Gleason Archer. That's another good one. And then there is uh, The Big Book of Bible Difficulties by Norman Geisler. So th these are, are, are good references to have on hand for when somebody stumps you and says, well, what about this and this? Isn't this, isn't this a blatant contradiction? And it's good, a good way to, to find out what the explanation is or what, what the explanation that, that scholars have offered is. Another, another book that I find very helpful, it's called Old Testament Quotations in the New Testament, a Complete Survey. And it, uh, it gives you all of the places in the New Testament where the writers quoted from the Old Testament. And not only the places where they quoted from the Old Testament, but also when they even alluded to a passage of the Old Testament. That's found in here. And so the way it's set up, it gives you 
the Masoretic text, the Septuagint, and then the New Testament quote, and then there's some commentary over here. So it, it gives you a very thorough explanation of, of you know, what, what the writers of the New Testament were doing, whether they were quoting from the Masoretic text or the Septuagint. They usually quote from the, from the Septuagint more often than they quote from the Masoretic text, but, some, but they do both. And sometimes they seem to quote from some text that is no longer extant. So it's very good for helping you to understand what's going on when, when one of the writers from the New Testament either quotes an Old Testament passage or refers to it, alludes to it. So um, Mike has a question, has a statement. It's just more of a comment or question. Would it be possible to get those uh, reference books put up on on the website along with the with the with the Sunday school link. Can we get okay. those, you know, and then just post them on there? So, okay, because that'd be Good great idea. to do. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Because then, otherwise, otherwise you don't have, have to all go you know, trying to write them down. Sing with me, Brian. When you first started, you were talking about the age difference, the 135 years and the 75 years, and then you were showing how that in uh, when they listed like a series yeah. of names that the first name was not always the oldest, right. it could be the most prominent in yep. the subject matter. Mm -hmm. We see that all the time in modern literature. If you're reading a novel, people would never question the way that that's written if they were reading a novel. But yet it seems when it comes to anything biblical, then they want to tear it apart. But that's, but, but the Bible's written, uh, it's, it's great literature. It's written properly. Yeah. From, an from, uh, from an author's point of view, that there's nothing unusual about what you said. Mm -hmm. it, it so often happens that people who are looking for these discrepancies, these contradictions in the Bible, are eager to jump on something that, that seems to them to be a contradiction, a discrepancy, without checking the context, without looking into the history and the language and the customs of the people. Eric. Just to kind of continue with what Brian has to say on the subject of, you know, of having to repurchase the same land, uh, I've read various accounts that in Israel today that most of that land that Jewish people returning over the past hundred years, they bought that land. They bought it from oftentimes at inflated prices. And yet you hear all the time in the newspapers and other places that, that the Israelite people stole the land. So, in other words, this is kind of like what Brian was saying. Things haven't really changed. You have to buy the land again and again. And, uh, none of this is, is surprising. Yeah, in, many, in many, many cases, the, the Jewish people who migrate, immigrated to Israel purchased the land from the Arabs before Israel was even a nation. So they already had purchased the land, they had title deed to it. But once again, you hear that same over and over again. Well, they stole our land. They took our land. <laughs> Mike's got something. I'd just like to point out, too, the fact that we have all these texts, the papyra, and basically all over the world, Middle East, and we, we've 
keep rediscovering them, and uh, that allows the critics to say, look, at, there's discrepancies here, 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 and here. Well, what they're not pointing out is the fact that they don't have all these texts. The reasons that some of their, like the Muslims, they claim theirs to be you know, completely infallible, but it's not. And they don't have all the documentation that we have that allows them to critique our scriptures. But they prove out, as, you, as you're showing us here today, that there are no <coughs> contradictions, <coughs> excuse me, um, but there are uh, uh, things that can be explained. But just the fact that we have all these gives it even more credibility. Yeah, the, the Muslims like to say that, well, the Quran is perfect because there's no variations, there's no variance. Well, the only reason that there are no variants is because at some point they got rid of all the variants yeah. <laughs> that destroyed them. So. Yeah, right, and there's proof of that, too, and there still are, there still are variants. Well, yeah. um, I, I guess I haven't checked this out, but when I was in seminary, one of my professors was pointing out that in the Dome of the Rock on, on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, there are quotations from the Quran inscribed on the walls. Well, he was saying that one of them is different from what is in the Quran today. You know, so it was one of those variants that they got rid of. <laughs> mm -hmm. right. Thank you, uh, uh, Dana, for this. This was very informative, and it just gives us really great uh, information to address these. And, and, and yeah. I really appreciate the fact we get this in the friendly environment instead yeah, of the, yeah. you know, and not get surprised by them and. Yeah. and uh, so I'll get back to on that later, you know. <laughs> because, because if you've never heard before that Stephen says 75 and Genesis says 70 and somebody suddenly confronts you with that, oh, you're, you're taken aback, you don't, well, you don't know how to respond. But these, these uh, apparent discrepancies can be explained. Yeah, yeah I, I, um, I, on the subject, see, this is just excellent material, just like Mike was saying. This is, this is just wonderful to have. I've also read that, you know, we, we've got some of these little, uh, well, what some people, if you're a skeptic or, or not, not a skeptic, if you're a person that's determined not to believe in the Bible, yeah. then you latch on to these things. But I've read that when it comes to the, the person of Jesus Christ and who he is and all of the essential doctrines of who God is and, and who man is, all of these great truths of the Bible that, that are the essentials, there are no... Uh, uh, none of these kind of where you can look at and say that there's some confusion and stuff. Uh, uh, you know, the Bible, even even uh, even looking at some of the uh, the different uh, letters and the similarities, when it comes to the gospel message, there is no yeah. ambiguity there at all. Yeah, that's what I've read, and I think yeah. that's true. There, there are many different variants in in the biblical manuscripts. And in, in every case, we can't be 100% certain which, which reading is the correct one. But as far as doctrine is concerned, there is no doubt. I mean, there, there's no discrepancy that, that casts a doctrine. Because if you think about it, with, with most doctrines, they're not just dependent on one passage of Scripture. If, if a doctrine is dependent on just one passage of Scripture or one verse of Scripture, it probably is a pretty suspicious doctrine. <laughs> that, that's what the, what the Mormons do with, uh, with 1 Corinthians, where they talk about being baptized for the dead. They build an entire elaborate doctrine just based on their understanding of that one verse. <laughs> so 
any, any doctrine that's just based on one verse is pretty sus suspect. Uh, like like uh, Eric uh, Fredrickson and Jim Palmer, I come from an accounting background. So I really like the numbers of the Bible. <laughs> I like to dig into the numbers. Well, because one thing that accountants are just programmed to do is to reconcile things. Well, over here it says this, and over here it says this. Well, how, do, how does this jive? How do these two? <laughs> so I just love the numbers of the Bible. That's, what, that's why from an apologetic standpoint, uh, Acts chapter 7 is one of, one of my favorite. Any further oh, comments? Well, let's let's uh, close here with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us your word, your scripture that is inerrant and infallible. And we ask that you would help us to internalize this divine message and to share it with those around us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.